Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery and welcome to Season 7, <laughs> Episode 6 or 7, who knows? I think it's 6. I'm fairly certain it's 6, six. like you I are. just told you. Yeah. <laughs> We, uh, yeah, we we skipped a week or we missed a week, we should say, but we're back, we are back for another couple of episodes before the end of the season. Before we introduce the guest, though, I wanted to just mention uh, your book tour because I know we've spoken about it quite a lot on this season, mm-hmm. in this season, and due to circumstances, that has been, well, some of it has been postponed till we don't know when. And others, we're just not sure whether it will happen. So we're going to do a virtual launch. We are. We are. So uh, there's not a lot of warning for this. If you're listening to this live, live like the day it What are you out, doing in my room? <laughs> it's a breach of privacy. Please leave our house. <laughs> uh, no, if you're listening to this the day that it is released or soon thereafter, you still have time to join us because on the 25th of July, which is a Sunday, we are hosting two virtual book launches and signings. Uh, the first one is at 7 a.m. It's called The Early Bird for obvious reasons. And the second one, the afternoon session, is at 4 p.m. And they are Sydney times. But we did that. We broke it up in that way to hopefully fit in with as many time zones across the world as possible because the benefit of doing it this way is that we get to launch the book with our listeners who aren't in the places that I was going to tour. So, you know, if that's you and if you're keen to come along, you can find links to both of those events in the show notes. You'll also have the chance during the event and after the event to order your own personalised signed copy of CARE. Um, If you're listening to this after the 25th of July 2021, uh, you can actually pick up a personalised signed copy of CARE uh, and slow and destination simple on the website for real for real yeah so nice. slowyourhome.com slash books is where you go to pick that up um or if you just go to slowyourhome.com hit the events tab you'll find all the info about the launch and i hope to see your lovely faces there or on your socials you've also got reference to the launch and Indeed. you can go so it's an event bright virtual launch looking forward to it yeah it'll be great and so in today's episode, you speak to the lovely Jade from Black Barn Farm and Future Steading. I do, yes. So Jade, as you said, is uh, one half of the Future Steading podcast, which is a brilliant podcast that I happened to be a guest on a couple of months ago. And she's also one half of the duo who runs Black Barn Farm, which is a uh, like a permaculture heirloom orchard. In Victoria. So good. It's brilliant. Uh, So if you are in that area, uh, you should absolutely go and check out what Jade and Charlie are up to on the farm, um, obviously when COVID allows, because they uh, at various times throughout the year do pick your own apples and pears and things like that. They also sell bare-rooted um, fruit trees, heirloom varieties, that sort of stuff that you can order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're building, literally building the black barn uh, that the farm's named oh, really? after at the moment. And the the vision is to host community events and workshops and make it a space where people are able to come and see the realities of running a sustainable, viable, like financially viable, small-scale, organic So good. Farm. Is it in the Gibsland? No, it's not. It's close to the border of New South Wales oh, and um, Victoria. So is it but Jade all... is from Gippsland. Is she? Yeah. Oh, wow. Because it's all basically the food bowl of Australia, that area. Yeah. So we yeah. have a really good chat about uh, what drove them to to buy the property and to develop it in the way that they have, which sort of was a kind of a heartbreaking part of the conversation because Jade speaks about how many of the farmers – uh, that they, you know, were neighbouring, mm. were older mm. and there was no, uh, you know, no succession plan. There was no way to, you know, future-proof those properties and to see them shift away from food production, particularly when it's such a bountiful kind of area, is, I mean, it asks bigger questions. It's a huge st- story that's happening 
all over Australia. Yep. That succession planning and farmers getting off the land and uh, not only Australia, but oh. I've seen, we've seen it in the US, we've seen it, you know, in Canada. So it's, you know, it's happening. This is a global issue. It is. And it's yeah. partly climate change because, I mean, growing food in a changing climate is so challenging. And then to do it in a way that is regenerative, again, more mm. challenging. Mm. And then to do it in a way that is financially viable, man. Yeah. So that's what I love about what Jade and Charlie are doing uh, on the farm. And that sort of brings, that's, you know, the first half of the conversation, really, we talk about that and the work that they do. But uh, I also want to highlight the fact that Jade has a book coming out and it looks phenomenal. It's called Future Steading. Okay. And it is essentially a, a handbook um, or a guidebook on how to live like what we do matters for the future, you know. Um, and while it takes part of its name from the idea of homesteading, it's a movement, a philosophy that's designed for everybody. You know, you can future stead if you live in a tiny flat in the middle of the city, uh, if you're in the suburbs, if you do live in the country. There's options for future steading regardless of where you live. Uh, and the book comes out the 3rd of August. So you've got time to pre-order a copy. I know that um, Booktopia has some copies and I will include links to that in the show notes as well as all the other usual suspects, places you can grab books um, or mm. get in touch with your local indie bookshop and ask them to order it in. Because I know as an author myself, that is such a brilliant thing to yeah. get the support of your local independent booksellers. So definitely uh you know give jade's book some love if you would like to find out more about the work she does you can visit them at blackbarnfarm.com.au and you can also uh, take a listen to the future setting podcast at futuresteading.com.au all of that over on slowyourhome.com slash season seven well let's get into that conversation please do enjoy Jade, hello. Hi, how are you in this I'm, cold, wet, miserable winter? Oh, I'm so good because I love that weather. Do you? I do. Oh, we, yeah. need to swap, we need to swap spots. I look at your Instagram posts and you're talking about, you know, the chill and the, having the firebox on till October and I'm like, that is my jam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the daily or multiple times daily haul up from the chicken pen with the load of wood and the dust. There's so yeah. much dust. and I spend my life saying, shut the door, shut the curtains. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we live, so we're in the Southern Highlands, so it's not quite as cold where you are, but it gets pretty but it's cold. it's still pretty fresh. Yeah, yeah. And we've got two fires. We've got one stove in the kit, in the old part of the house in the kitchen, then we've got one in the living room. And it is a job. It, it is, is a job. job. Yeah. Yeah, it is a job. And I have this ongoing standoff with our stove, our cooking stove as well, because I just can't work her out. She's got Charlie wrapped around her little finger and we're both just having tantrums with each other. So, yeah, it's a job and she's a brat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good um, kind of in, actually, to give people listening a bit of an overview of where you live and, you know, how you got there, I guess. So whereabouts do you live on your beautiful Black Barn Farm? Black Barn Farm is 10K south of Beechworth, which is just near the border of New South Wales and Victoria. And we've been up here for about um, 23, 24 years, but we've been on the farm only for about six years. So we started in Stanley, then we moved into Beechworth when we had the little um, when the kids were little and we knew all of that time that we wanted to farm but it just took us a really long time to find the block that met all of our desires and actually we probably could have bought three or four blocks before we landed on this one but we were still deep in understanding what it was we actually wanted to do we knew we wanted to farm and we knew we wanted it to be small scale and family owned but we needed to really define our business model so that it could be financially viable and kind of reach all of those desires of connecting with our community and educating school kids and um, you know sharing abundance of food and and just aligning with our other projects which at the time were the Beechworth Food Co-op which I've since stepped away from um, 
and obviously parenting. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> they mostly just fit in around the edges, but um, actually that's not completely true. I wish that were more true sometimes. But <laughs> Oh, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so you've kind of had in your mind for a long time the sort of farm, the sort of space that you wanted to build together. Um, but what was the, I guess, the catalyst? Like where did that originate from, that vision? Both of us grew up on land. I'm a Gippsland girl and that's where my whole family still are and our, our history was farming. But um, my parents were full-blown hippie permies and we grew all of our own food and what we didn't grow we traded with um, others for. And Charlie wasn't quite as hippie. In fact, he wasn't hippie at all, but he definitely grew up on land. But when we were 20, we moved back from the city, um, having both finished our degrees or 21. And we moved into a tiny little cottage on the plateau in Stanley that was surrounded by apple, pear and cherry orchards. And even in the first two or three years of being there, so really formative, we, we had these ideals of how we wanted life to be. And we had a massive big veggie garden and we had beautiful connections with our all our neighbours who actually were elderly. But as we got to know them, we discovered that there were no succession plans in place and everybody around us just started to push their orchards, multi-generational orchards out, which made us start to really question what the hell was going on with our food system. And so um, it obviously challenged us to realise that you know, small-scale farming ventures, family-owned farming ventures just weren't viable anymore and long supply chains really were uh, price dictators and um, the conditions and the way in which the fruit was sold just didn't work for, for small scales that, that weren't monocultures. And, of course, that opens up a whole series of other questions. So my background is tourism and marketing, but my husband's was engineering. And between our two sets of curious heads and our previous skills, we started to define what a small-scale um, business model could look like where we could actually take one of these family farms that was established with orchards and open it up so that people could access real food locally and understand how it was grown and what the vagaries of that looked like. And we got to know quite a lot of the other uh, farmers in the area and um, discovered that it was a pretty widespread worry. And so we went to Vermont in the States and we did a five-month local food system tour essentially um, we were fortunate enough to have a beautiful friend offer us a position at a summer camp that I had worked at years earlier so we took our kids and they just went to the summer camp and when we weren't working we took ourselves to farmers markets and food co-ops and and pick your own facilities and family-owned uh, apple orchards and and just come back with folders and folders of, of knowledge and we started the food co-op and started running events through the food co-op and at about the same time we finally landed on a piece of land here that is now Black Barn Farm. Without a Black Barn, we've nearly finished building, but we're not there yet. <laughs> Everyone says, there's no Black Barn here. It's like, yeah, well, that was meant to happen the first year we got here, but... It's more a vision statement. <laughs> yeah, it probably was. And with things that I think um, um, really mean something, they come slowly and they yep. should come slowly because they're iterative and they evolve and they develop into what they should be rather than that kind of immediate money can buy solution. And so that's how I justified in my mind anyway, that this beautiful piece of architecturally designed um, post and beam building will come to life. And that's where we want to share all of our workshops and our events and our schools programs. We currently run them all out of our packing shed, but, um, and that works. It's beautiful. It's pretty rustic, but it's beautiful. But, you know, we wanted a purpose-built space so that we could really really throw the doors wide open to mm. people who wanted to know where the hell their food came from and what heritage apples even are and what time of year berries can be picked. I mean, there's so much to kind of dig into in your answer there. Um, and I'm curious, I suppose, about uh, the, the age thing that you mentioned in that the vast majority of your original neighbours when you first started living in Stanley were, were older have you seen that shift over the last 20 odd years that you've been or however long it is that you've been in the area um and I guess who's picked up the mantle if you have seen the you know a younger crowd come in 
there is definitely a younger crowd, but very few have picked up the farming mantle. So right. the farms have had their high production value pushed out and they've been replaced with horses or bikes or whatever it might be as lifestyle properties, which, right. you know, we're in a high value agricultural area and, and we've been known as that for a, a very long time. And, and so I find that a bit heartbreaking. Mm. But um you know, and the, the truth is that in order to make it viable, you need to work bloody hard. Right. And so whether people have the desire to do that or not, I couldn't say. I know everybody in our personal world says, Are you guys crazy, you work harder than anyone you, we know. And, you know, where's the end of the, Where's the end of this? And I don't know that there is one. I know we're certainly in startup mode at the moment, but that's now been seven years or six years long and we've probably got three or four more years before we're really fully functioning because it just takes that long to grow trees and to graft from scratch and to get all your fencing in and get your soil right and you know it's a slow journey exactly that's exactly what I was going to say I mean it really I can imagine calls on you guys to completely reframe like what success looks like like in capitalist culture right it's yeah uh, it's lifestyle it's um a quick turnaround it's high profitability it is not working really long days throughout the entire year and you know digging and excavating into this vision literally with your own hands for years and years and years before you you arrive at it and I'm not saying that to be depressing I'm saying that because it's just a complete (laughs) I probably sounded like it (laughs) um yeah it is I'm saying it out of admiration first of all because I think it's so important to have people like you and Charlie who are pioneering right? You're prepared to put the work in and show people that there is a viable option, albeit full of very, very hard work and a lot of sacrifice. Um, But you're also challenging the status quo, right? You're saying, okay, hang on, if if we're not, if we're not growing our food locally, if we're not, if we don't have a generation of people prepared to care and show up and support these local growers, uh, then we're going to lose it all. So, you know, this is our effort to bring that A to the front of people's minds, but also to start to rectify it and put in frameworks that work in a modern, mm. you know, a modern sitting, a modern capacity. Now, I'm glad you finished with that sentence because when you said you're pioneering, every ounce of me went, oh, all of those amazing humans who did genuinely pioneer and we are not, you know, we we had cleared land and we had, you know, established dams and we had fencing and sure. So, and there are still people on this plateau that genuinely pioneered. They genuinely cleared land and and found ways to feed their family through first-gen agriculture. And, you know, they we slowly watched as they've either died or left the land and it's Mm. been a bit heartbreaking because their skills aren't being passed down to um, family. They're being passed down to us, but who are we? Like, we're just these random ring-ins, really. We've only been here 20 years and... So I'm really cognizant of honouring everything that they've willingly shared and all of the work that they have done prior to us. But your last sentence was um, to show us how that looks in today's age. And I think that's really where the challenge is. We live in a world of short-termism and we live Mm. where the paradigm of growth is really dominant. And to then say, actually, the decision that we've made is to look at something that is based around a legacy goal of multiple generations. We don't expect that we will do what we would like to see in our generation. We just can't. Nature doesn't Mm -hmm. work that fast. Um, And we actively have said we don't want to keep growing. We actually want to define that very clear line in the sand that says this is our enough. Enough for us is a beautiful relationship where we've got enough time to have picnics at lunchtime and where we're not so tired at night or screened out that we don't want to go and sit and look at the stars even if it is freezing and tree dooners where if we want to think about sending our kids to the local Montessori school which costs more than the local primary school then we've got that little bit of extra fat but that's where our priority sits Mm. that if I you know, haven't been able to grow something this year and I want to support a local biodynamic or organic grower who is more expensive than it would be from Coles 40 miles, 40 k's away, that I can afford 
that or if my tomatoes don't work and I need to buy some, I, I can um, afford that. That for me is enough. And mm. I think knowing what your enough is and then working and what your legacy goal is and then working back from that actually completely reframes everything. You don't have this endless push to be bigger and better and shinier and glossier and even our growing practices indicate that people say all the time what a shame you haven't got more time to take more care of your orchard and we say but our orchard is filled to the brim with chaos and biodiversity and life and actually it's intentionally been left to look like a mess it doesn't look like every other orchard on this plateau because they use different methods but we use the method of working with mother nature to add life not take life away using um, synthetic inputs. And so even that has reframed the way we farm. And that actually isn't done on this plateau. And so there is a bit of pioneering in that because we're actually pushing uphill pretty steeply and all those around us are uh, waiting with bated breath and crossed arms to see us fail. And so... And it just takes, it takes a certain amount of rebelliousness, right, to stand in a stream and look at the direction the water's going and go, actually, I'm going to go this way. Yeah, I'm going to kick really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go up this way, upstream. Um, you know, and I think I'm a huge believer in uh, learning to tap into your own, into your inner rebel, you know, into that person who lives inside all of us who's like, there's a different way and I know and you know let's have a talk um yeah so I think that that's uh that that rebelliousness is something that really appeals to me in the work that you're doing um and the way that you're doing it as well but Mm. also in the question that you essentially asked yourselves of what do we want to leave behind you know and when you have a a picture of what we want to leave behind, what you want your legacy to be, and be an idea of what your version of enough or success is. Mm. It becomes so much um, not easier, but simpler to make decisions that are in service of that, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you find that in your day-to-day life? Like if you're able to reflect on that legacy and reflect on that um, sense of enough or what that looks like for you, that you can make those choices that perhaps otherwise would be harder? Yeah, most definitely. I know when we, and you said pushing upstream, but the analogy that I often use is letting go of the riverbank and letting the stream actually take you to where you're meant to go, where that destination of you as a person is meant to end up. And when I've let go of the riverbank, which I have actually done over the last three years, I've recently just resumed a really exciting project for a whole series of reasons, but um, working for someone else. And so... That, that has actually been a bit confronting for me because I've had to really realise that I've grabbed hold of the riverbank again where everybody else is standing and I'm participating in a world that I've very actively chosen not to participate in for a while while I really sunk my teeth into devi- devising what future setting looked like as a philosophy. Mm. Um, and I, I think um, the confidence to let go of that riverbank is something that only comes from a very, very deep place. You have to ultimately feel like you've got enough confidence in your ideology, those that are around you, so there's a sense of solidarity, and that ultimately it's the best thing that you could possibly do to reach the legacy that you've set. And sometimes there's compromise. Of course there's compromise. You know, parenting is a really big one of those. It's really hard to navigate our kids through this world without a bit of compromise. But, um, yeah, ultimately I think they end up becoming your absolute North Stars because mm. you, you seek them out and you give yourself time to feel really deeply, to observe really gently and really critically, and they sound a bit... Um, oxymoronic I know but I mean gentle on yourself but critically from a systems perspective and I think um, it also allows you to forgive yourself on the things that you do do that are a bit of a bit of compromising because we can't live in a world free of hypocrisy we do live in the world that we swim in and it's really important to acknowledge that you're not going to have an impact if you're living in a, a cave and not interacting with anybody and so you need to work out what works for you and mm. 
you know, go gently and just go very assuredly in that direction and as slowly as it needs to be. Some people have an impatience that means they can't go slowly and it was probably me before I hit a health wall a few years ago, which is actually what made me step away from the riverbank and working for others in the first place and I really embraced everything that future setting is. Mm. And... Um, Oh, my Lord, I felt more whole than I've ever felt in my life, which is intriguing because I then did say, okay, well, I will go back and do this other project on the side, but it's because of its ultimate, the values alignment of, of this other project is. is right, cool. which um, is intention, right? You know, and you you can't necessarily, yeah. well, I certainly have never necessarily been able to um, live fully intentionally if I hadn't been through you know that process of letting go and that process of digging in and finding what your personal philosophy is and you know what you're willing to compromise on and what you're not willing to compromise on all of that stuff it's like I think that um that intentionality comes from knowing more about yourself and you know being prepared to do that I think that happened for me when I hit 40 too. Right. Right. I I actually don't need people in my life that complicate things and make me feel shit about my reason for existence or, you know, that that are um, disrespectful or actually I know what I want and I know who I am and I know what life needs to be and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. It's such a, there is a... um... A freedom in that right in that sort of recognizing yourself and having the confidence to as you said say this is who I am this is what I need this is what I'm putting out into the world and yeah. this is not part of that so goodbye yeah, take that or leave that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um so future setting um yeah. it is a wonderful podcast that you co-host where you have conversations um about living like the future matters which I love uh and it's also an upcoming book um I'm curious which came first did you have the idea for the book and then launch the conversation series or the other way around no really the concept came first and then we had to work out what we did with that and Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to do it on my own so Mm. um big for a few reasons one I didn't know if I would have the gumption to follow through if I just did it on my own maybe it'd just be a cooked up concept that I never brought to life but two, I had hit 40. Actually, I was 42, I think, when I kind of landed on the idea that a pod series would be worth doing. And we had had the glorious Katie and George and their beautiful dog, Dave, living with us about a year and a half or two years earlier than that. And, oh, man, she's fresh as an easterly breeze and she's just irreverent and she's she's edgy and her enough is more minimalist than anyone I've ever met and she truly lives by that and there's so much about her that just made me think you are it personified she's living in a rental house in the city and she still lives like this it's all about what's going on between her ears and I thought I don't I don't want to do this on my own because maybe I'm frumpy and maybe I've lost touch with the world because I spend my days on the farm and I'm just in gumboots all the time and no one's going to want to listen to that and so I rang her thinking she'd say no, bugger off, and she didn't. She said, okay, if you think we can do this, let's give it a crack. And I was simultaneously pitching the book, which wasn't fully fleshed out, but um, the principles had largely been devised. Um, and I knew what it needed to look like. I just had to had to sort of infill it a bit. Mm. So they both kind of came at the same time, actually, which was a beautiful journey because I was meeting these amazing humans doing incredible things and I was able to take their thoughts and their their views on the world into the book as well and I love that you know with the pod and and by extension the book you do have those two quite different sorts of um inputs you know city urban life country life uh you you can't help but view things through different lenses and different experiences, but never does the idea of future setting of living like it matters. It's never inaccessible to people based on those sorts of circumstances. And I think that's so, such an important part of the conversation, you know, that this is something that everyone can do. Yeah. 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 Little tiny things that feel yep. um, joyful still, they don't have to be wrapped up in earnestness that kind of suffocate you. Um, and they're where you're at. They meet you exactly where you're at. And everyone's at a different stage of their transition journey to living in a way that um, 
assures that the, the future matters. And I think it's really important that people feel like they can join where it, where it works rather mm. than feeling like it's this dogmatic set of rules that they need to abide by. There's no rules. There are definitely principles, and that was just so that we could put a bit of structure around really what it stood for. And, um, yeah, what, what we found was that we were running all these workshops and people were coming to our homestead our farm all the time and looking at our homesteading setup and saying I wish I could do this but because I'm not on land and because I don't homestead I can't and I kept saying but it's actually not about Mm. the sprawling acres it's about the lens that you're looking through and the way you make your decisions on a day-to-day basis you know how do you genuinely support local do you shop at your food co-op rather than at the supermarket, even though they don't always have what you want and it sometimes is a bit inconvenient because the volunteer is learning how to use the till? Or do you send your kids to the local high school? And even though it doesn't offer all of the year 12 subjects or the breadth of, um, you know, cohort that you'd like your kids to be associated with, you actually back your local school because they're in your backyard and you get mm-hmm. on the school board and you actively participate in being a local uh, a local community member and you find ways to connect others and mm. I think in some ways that would be a more challenging answer to people right because um it's kind of easier to look at someone's life like yours that might be completely different but very appealing from the outside to someone who doesn't know the realities of it yeah uh, and it's you know it, it's 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 rustic and it, you know, it photographs well and it sounds very romantic, <laughs> right? But, yeah. you know, and I know through talking to you and friends who do similar, that it is bloody hard. Like it's hard. So when you push back and kind of reflect that desire for someone to live differently into the decisions that they're making in their day-to-day, that we're all making in our day-to-day in our communities and saying, great, you know, hold this vision for the future if that's what you really want, but what can you do now? Because it all matters, you know, it all matters. And that is somewhat more challenging, I think, because you said the word inconvenience is something that we are, we abhor, you know, we're like, I can get everything I need at the supermarket. I don't want to go to three different shops and I don't want to get a, you know, a locally grown organic veggie box delivery every week because I don't know what to do with kohlrabi and, you know. Like, For six weeks in a row, exactly. or 12, depending on how long the season runs, fully, right? Right. Yeah. So it speaks, it's it, like it's very counter, it's quite literally counter to the way that we're used to living and I think that that's the lens that we can all, you know, do our bit to I think also where it is also counter is that it's, um, well, there's a few things with that. One of them is that it really calls you on your say, do gap. And I talk about this all the time. It really calls you out. It's all very well to have ideology and this sort of sense of self um, aligning with one set of principles or values. But how do you actually live those? Yeah. And you know, it's it's all of the little tiny decisions that you make that add up to truly walking mm. the talk. And it's very easy to talk the talk, but actually living it. And, you know, I'm the first, and I do get turned in knots at times, where I say, I've just written a bloody book on future steading, where we talk about it being the on-ramp to a waste-free existence or an on-ramp to a deeply connected community. Yet I haven't seen anyone for six months because I've been writing a book. And <laughs> I'm still putting half a bag of plastic rubbish in the bin every week because I haven't had a chance to get into town to put it in the soft plastic bin. So, you know, and I turn myself in knots over those things because I think, man, how can I preach this stuff? But I need to be real. I need to be exactly. really real. And uh, there are times where you can't do it all at the same time. And I say that in my book as well. Obviously, you would read through this and think, Christ, I can't actually do that all the time. And I don't either. Of course mm. I don't. But um, the say do gap is something that really dogs me because I guess after years and years of devising and implementing community initiatives, uh, in my mind, for the sake of the greater good, there's lots and lots of people who love the concept, but they don't actually support it. You know, we would get hundreds of people join at the food co-op and then not once would they come and shop. Right. You think, I don't need you to join so I can tell the local council that I've got a 1,000 members. I need you just to come once a week and buy your coffee from us or, 
you know, buy your fresh greens from us so that I don't have to go back to that local farmer and say, sorry, none of your greens sold this week. They looked beautiful on the shelf, but they didn't sell. So the do bit is really important. Philosophy is one thing, but actioning Mm. it is really important. And I suppose that really means broadening what it looks like to us to do these things. You know, I think so often, as you reflected, we get tied up in knots that it's not enough or it's not perfect or it's not big or it's not showy or impressive. Mm. It doesn't need to be, you know. I think you and I are both very much about the power of small as, you know, significant. Small is significant and it leads places. But, you know, even if it doesn't, small still matters, Uh, you know, and I think, yeah, really broadening that idea of what the doing, you know, regardless of the principle, uh, looks like and just committing to finding those small tiny you know silly almost insignificant ways of yeah. doing more yeah. yeah I've got a million lists in the book of all of those silly and small insignificant things and it might be you know don't go to a spa for a, a treatment because you think you've deserve it run a bubble bath invite a friend put your bathers on and get in it together and drink a bottle a bottle of champagne like you can still do really fun silly things that um have an open fire outside and you can do that in any backyard in any part of suburbia it doesn't matter and invite the next door neighbors for a potluck dinner you don't need to have them for a dinner party just have a potluck dinner and kick off your shoes and and share a a plate of whatever the heck you've grown or, you know, set up a, an abundance box on the corner of your street or, you know, consider um, sharing things like lawnmowers or vacuum cleaners with neighbours because, man, you'll have some good conversations as you swap them over in the street every week and you'll connect with, you know, your fellow humans that live in exactly the same part of the world as you and are most likely experiencing similar things mm. to you. It's all of those little things that don't necessarily cost a cent. It's putting a, a bunch of mint on your kitchen table so that um, you know rather than buying a packet of peppermint tea you don't have to generate any food miles or or any waste you can just pick fresh mint leaves and pop them into a, a cup of boiling water every morning and that can become a daily ritual so I, I feel like it's really looking at every single thing that you think you need and really assessing do I actually need that is there another way I can do that does a beautiful meal out have to cost me a fortune mm. Or could I create a picnic and do it? Actually, I had a boyfriend once. I had dreamt about him last night. That is weird. I had a boyfriend once who um, took me on a picnic in a roundabout in the middle of a road in a really busy intersection. Mm-hmm. I felt like an absolute freak show. But I have never forgotten that. Like it was right. the most amazing experience. It didn't cost us really anything. And it was unbelievably memorable. Oh, I like that. I really like that. <laughs> I couldn't deal with kids. They get squashed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. There's a time and a place, I guess, for a yeah. picnic in a roundabout. <laughs> um, so two things, I guess. You mentioned the principles of future setting. Can yeah. you give us a quick overview of what they are? Um, okay, yeah. I'll do it as quickly as I possibly can. I know, can. I'm so, sorry. It's such a how long is a piece of string question. No, well, there's seven of them, and they're all accessible from wherever you are in the country. Um, and the way in which you interpret them is completely up to you. And, um, you know, that depends on where you're at and what you like and what others around you enjoy as well, so that when you're trying to bring them into the sphere, you can all share it together. But the first one is meeting Mother Nature. And I guess it's just really looking at everything that's around you and noticing the subtle patterns and the beauty and the evolution and fragility and strength of everything that she is. So noticing it, Mm. really take the time to look at those swelling buds and realise that the seasonality has changed and taking your shoes off and feeling grass and mud and sand under your feet and really being in it. And actually offer her a bit of awe and respect because... um, Jesus, she's our absolute foundation. So, you know, start there. That's a good spot to start. Sorry, just to interrupt you, awe is one of my favourite things to seek out and experience. Like I've got a whole chapter about it in care. And I think when you apply it to um, like to nature and to food and to our own bodies and, you know, the way we settle into the world, it's just a phenomenally transformative experience that the benefits are massive to us. 
But if you it's know, huge, I interviewed someone yesterday who said, when I'm anxious or a bit overwhelmed, I sit wherever I can, wherever I can sing green stuff. There might be grass, it might be trees, it might be all of the above. And I look and count how many different types of green I can see. And she said, within mm. seconds, I've breathed deeply, I've come back into the moment, I've let go of whatever else is going on. And even though I might be urban-based, that experience of biophilia washes over me and it just recalibrates. And so, you know, she's just, she's beautiful. Everything that Mother Nature delivers is incredible. And in many ways, she's become invisible. But we're all experiencing the atmosphere that is created by Mother Nature all of the time, even if it's in a, an air-conditioned apartment, to an air-conditioned car, to an air-conditioned office. That is all still being managed by something that's bigger than all of us. So let's mm -hmm. honour the biggest and the littlest things in our life. Which kind of leads through to the second one, which is celebrating simple. And this word is a bit um, fraught for me because people say, oh, but you've managed to work out how to live the simple life. I can tell you <laughs> there ain't nothing simple about this life that we're living. It is, it is, it's got more moving parts and more complications. You know, we're off the grid for a lot of our power we're off um, our water is all managed here so if we put a fork through a pipe then we have no water for days on end um you know generators are a thing because power goes out pretty regularly and there's animals to be fed every single day whether you're here or not so you've got to make sure you are here or someone else is um you know we're keeping fires going all the time we're making sure fences that have got trees falling across them are still up so we don't get hit by wallabies you know there are so many things and seasonal existence which mm. is another one of the one of the um, principles is to salute them and just embrace the fact that yeah for three months of the year in the guts of the deep chill which is what people call winter and I call deep chill in the book it's kind of miserable and it's wet and it's cold and there's lots about it that sucks. But actually it's a beautiful time to turn inward and to reflect on the season that's been and to ponder what you might do differently next year and to deeply nourish yourself with restful days or shorter days and, and more restful, less physical activities. But, you know, know that in Australia, depending on where you are, of course, um, no season really lasts forever here. It'll, it'll come and it'll go pretty quickly. And so honour it and be okay to be in it and, and let, it, let it wash over you as is. Um, I've talked a fair bit about loving local, but that is one of the principles. Um, I've talked about, I haven't talked about making place. And making place is a funny one. And for me, it was a big one because I didn't grow up where I live now. And it took mm. me a really, really long time to deeply connect with the seasons and the colour of the air and the type of soil and the slightly different vernacular that people used and the fact that I didn't know what all of the street names meant because they were the surnames of families that I hadn't grown up with. You know, I, I, I'm from a community where my whole family is still there and there's five generations of us still alive and five generations before us. So our knowledge of the region is so inbuilt that I let all that go when I moved up here. But making a place is more than just a mark on a map. It's about knowing the heritage and the stories and um, the memories and the hopes of what you want to create and holding them really tight in your heart and sharing those with people around you. Mm. Um, you know, and it's about enabling curiosity and commitment to the people around you and contributing to culture. I think that's right. the other thing. It's about acknowledging that the culture of a place isn't always as we want it to be. So contribute to it. Find a way to, to navigate through it and be part of it. And I think that's really important. I think it's it's empowering too, I think, to recognise that we are in a position. You know, I got, we uprooted ourselves and our family and moved to a place that we had no connections two years ago and it is a challenge right? it, it really is a challenge and recognizing that you have the capacity to get involved and to begin new you know community like this community garden that um you know I was part of the very beginnings of that committee and it's now coming to fruition and to see that wow. is you know it's powerful to see it's that amazing as like an, an individual person who doesn't have those deep roots in an area you yeah, still yeah. can Involve yourself in it, yeah. And belong. 
I think yes, you don't exactly. belong unless you give. And yes. in order to give, you've got to be willing to be a bit vulnerable and give a little maybe compromise on the culture because it might not necessarily be yours right through to your core. So just finding a way to belong in a way that doesn't make you have to compromise and doesn't yes. make others be repelled by your sense of righteousness. So yeah. I think yeah, finding a way to belong is easier with kids, I have to say. Yes. Um, I was here for 10 years before I felt like I belonged and it wasn't until I had the kids that and I started pushing them around in the pram and I was moving at a much slower pace and was more present and available that I started to bump into people and accept invitations for cups of tea and, you know, really felt like I understood a place. I think growing food allows you to understand a place too. Yeah. For me it certainly does. I understand the seasons better. I understand the soil type. I understand my watershed. You know, you actively have to seek all of that knowledge out and mm. then you start to feel like you belong because you have a deep connection and understanding with everything that's around you, not just the people but the place. And that applies, you know, if you're in suburbia or in an urban setting or if you're in the country, you know, to to recognise like where the wind comes from and, yeah. uh, you know, what's coming if the sky turns that colour at that time yeah. of day, all that kind of stuff, you know, when the black cockatoos will fly over and, you know, there is a real deep sense of belonging when you start to view yourself as part of that as well, you know, and you take responsibility for it too, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And you wear appropriate clothing and yeah. you, you know, <laughs> totally. you, you participate in the very real reality of where you are. Um, the other two that I haven't talked about are seeking ritual. And ritual's a funny word. It makes people, some people go, oh, I don't have ritual. I'm not into any of that. It could, I literally mean it could be a daily cup of tea at 5am while you gather your thoughts and work out what your plans are. Yep. It might be when you pull the curtains every night and know that the day is done and letting it go. You know, it might be, and we, we do this, a huge big um, winter solstice bonfire. We have a mm. sale and we bring all of our most special people together and all the children run in the dark and we all dress up and we chant songs and we drink cider and we come up with creative ways of exploding a bonfire so that it feels dramatic and, and fun. And we do that every year. And that's probably our biggest ritual, but um, it's the little tiny day-to-day -day stuff that, you know, it creates um, patterns and rhythms and rites of passage and, and processes. And um, Sort of a sense of centeredness and groundedness in your day. I mean, we so often, as the last two years have proven, we have no idea what's around the corner, but we can control those tiny moments of ritual every day like yeah, I posted yeah. on Instagram yesterday how I love opening the curtains in the house every morning it's just one of my favorite things to do it's like exactly hello world <laughs> hello world come on in what, yeah. have we, what have we got in store today exactly you know and I mean I'm all about rituals I think that they are so um, important but yes agree with you that they don't need to be um, regularly you know epic they can just be tiny I think they don't also need to be earnest. I think when people yep. think of ritual, they think of highly ordered, organised processes. And, you know, it could be an opportunity to be surrounded by more tomfoolery and conviviality than anything else. Like it could just be completely off the cuff and unexpected. I interviewed someone beautiful last week and she said, oh, I love ritual. I start at one every week. <laughs> I said, right. Okay, so it's not a repeated thing. And she said, oh, I can't remember to repeat things. I just love ritual. <laughs> <laughs> oh good that's of course it doesn't have to be so dogged but it happens every single week exactly time. yeah if you just like you can approach anything with that sense of ritual and even if you do it once it's still that yeah, yeah. thing yeah yeah it's just got a, a sense of um richness to it mm -hmm. and then creating your plans and i you know this goes without saying that you need solidarity we're only as strong as the people we build our world with and it's a whole lot more fun when you're the sum of a part than or you're a part of the sum rather than um, the all. And yes. I think it's really important that we consider how we form part of that sort of circular spiral where we're in the centre because, of course, we are. That's a very white man way of looking at things. And that makes me cringe a bit as I say it, but it sort of is how we operate because mm. we always are looking at for ourselves. But the stronger your spiral the less you're looking out for yourselves yep. and starting to look for all of those who are encapsulated in that sphere. And if they're really close to you, it doesn't matter if they're geographically close, but really putting your whole community or clan 
front and centre when you're making your decisions. We we can't thrive on our own. No, and I think um, I, I think that we're kind of living that uh, reality at the moment where we're seeing that clash of individualism versus collective thinking and you know individualism is not getting us anywhere positive you know we we (laughs) we we really need to shift focus to the idea of thinking on behalf of the collective you know it doesn't need to be me first and in fact if it is me first then we all will lose at some point and we we maybe are already yeah 100 percent yeah, I think it's really important that we take responsibility for our own actions first. Yes. But I think equally as strongly it's important that we then consider what will impact others. Exactly. And that goes back to, you know, the, the say-do gap, I suppose. Yeah, yeah it really yeah, does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a lovely place to end. Um, I, I, I have a whole page of questions and I feel like I just scraped the top 10%. But <laughs> I talk too much. <laughs> No, God, no. It was such a delight. Um, I really appreciate your time. um, And I really encourage everyone listening to check out your book. Um, I will include links to the book and to your wonderful podcast with Katie and to your farm website um, in the show notes. But is there anywhere in particular you would encourage people to go and check out what you're up to? Instagram's probably the place that I update most regularly and stories are the least curated. You know, if you want to see what it's really like and and seeing me, I've got a whole series of events that will happen pending COVID lockdown. Um, I'm pretty raw and I'm pretty honest in reality. I'm not actually nearly as curated as people think I might be based on what they see on Instagram. (laughs) I swear a lot and I share lots of things I shouldn't share. (laughs) So that'll... That'll be out about in the next couple of weeks. I'll be sharing what my dates look like. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, yes, if you can, go and see Jade when she's on tour and I hope to be able to see you face-to-face. I know. That would be good. Wouldn't it? Really good, yeah. 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 Are you in the Blue Mountains? No, I'm in the Southern Um, Highlands. I was in the Blue Mountains. Southern Highlands, I mean. Yeah. There's a a couple of others in there too. Maybe we should come up with a plan to play. Oh, let's do that. Let's do that. All right. Let's, Let's make up plan to play um but in the meantime thank you thank you a delight and um i really can't wait to see the ripples that future setting casts out into the world um both in book and podcast little tiny steps i'm happy with tiny it's my enough (laughs) yep exactly me and you me and you both all right thank you too Hi, Puck Pass.